Welcome, everybody. Welcome. For those of you who are in class, I hope you've had a magnificent day. My name is Michael Suarez. I'm the executive director of Rare Book School, and it's my honor to introduce tonight's lecturer and then lecturer. For this is the oldest and most distinguished named lecture at Rare Book School. The Saul M. and Mary Ann O'Brien Malkin Lecture in Bibliography is named for the two founding editors of A.B. Bookman's Weekly, which from 1948 to 1999 was among the most important journals in the antiquarian bookselling world. In 1984, Marianne Malkin began to support an annual Rare Book School lecture in honor of her husband, Saul, in recognition of his contributions to the antiquarian trade. Michael Winship, then at the University of Texas, gave the first Saul M. Malkin lecture in bibliography at Columbia University in December of 1985. Although Saul sadly died in 1986, Marianne continued to support Rare Book School both at Columbia and then here at the University of Virginia. In the late 1990s, she allowed Rare Book School founding director Terry Bellinger to change the name of the lecture to the Sol M. and Marianne O'Brien Malkin Lecture in Bibliography. Until her death in 2005, Marianne Malkin came down from New York City to attend most of the Malkin Lectures, and she left the school a significant portion of her estate. Planned giving is still very possible. She was truly a friend of Rare Book School, and it's a great privilege to honor her memory in this ongoing way. Malkin lecturers over the years have included such luminaries as Greer Allen, Nicholas Barker, Bill Barlow, Bob Darnton, Miriam Foote, Christopher DeHamel, Lucian Goldsmith, Jim Green, Selby Kiefer, Jacqueline Goldsby and Meredith McGill, Catherine Kyles Lee, Justin Schiller, Roger Stoddard, Tom Tansel, and Marjorie Wynn. Joining their ranks as this year's Malkin lecturer is the distinguished scholar Eric White, and it is a pleasure to introduce him to you now. Eric Marshall White. Scheide Librarian and Assistant University Librarian for Special Collections, Rare Books, and Manuscripts, has been at Princeton University Library since the fall of 2015. Before that, though it hardly seems possible to me, he served for 18 years as Curator of Special Collections at Southern Methodist University's Bridwell Library in Dallas, Texas. Dr. White specializes in the study of early European printed books, particularly focusing on the material and historical evidence of their dissemination, use, and survival. His much-celebrated publication, Editio Princeps, 
a history of the Gutenberg Bible 2017, won Sharp's prestigious DeLong Prize as that year's outstanding book in the whole field of book history. Not surprisingly, it has also attracted rave reviews. John Goldfinch, writing in the library, wrote, White's book is no pared-down bibliography, but an exhaustive account of the copies. Each has its own extended narrative history, situated in much wider narrative of the history of the Bible in the context of the wider contemporary world, as well as collecting, connoisseurship, and scholarship. Cassie Brand in RBM, a journal of rare books, manuscripts, and cultural heritage, calls Editio Princeps a staggering work, explaining that because of his attention to the long and complex history of the book as an edition, the scholarly debates surrounding the book, and the long and varied history of each individual copy, this book serves as a history a historiography, and a reference work. Small wonder, then, that Dr. White has also delivered the Fortheimer Lecture at the Harry Ransom Center and the Zeidberg Lecture on the History of the Book for the Huntington Library. Excitingly, Dr. White is part of the research team at work now on From Jiki to Gutenberg, and collaborative project involving more than 30 scholars from around the globe investigating the technological evidence related to the invention of book printing. His subject today is A History of the Gutenberg Bible Continued, Lessons Learned and Next Steps. Please join me in welcoming our distinguished Malkin lecturer, Dr. Eric Marshall White. You see that? Very good. All right. Well, thank you, Michael, and thank you to all of my Rare Book School hosts, University of Virginia. Um, it's a real honor to be here. Uh, thank you. Uh, and what a room. Nice. Uh, it's an honor to join you this evening for the Malkin Lecture to speak on a topic that received coverage in many issues of that periodical founded by Saul Malkin in 1948, the A.B. Bookman's Weekly, which over the years featured several articles and censuses that he wrote or edited concerning the Gutenberg Bible, including a special issue on the Gutenberg Bible uh, in 1950. Uh, here's one of those uh, Malkin articles, and over the years, any time a Gutenberg Bible moved, uh, there would be a new census in this publication. Uh, from the beginning, Saul's future wife, Marianne O'Brien, was involved in these censuses, and if you look in the little um, detail there, uh, uh, her editorial work in the 1950 Gutenberg issue is acknowledged here by her future husband. Thus, there is a real link between the Malkins and my work uh, to be discussed this evening. Moreover, it's especially pleasant to share my work with the Rare Books School here at the University of Virginia, as only 10 days ago we wrapped up a thrilling week of instruction 
instruction, excuse me, at Princeton University Library uh, as the hosts of the RBS course, 15th Century Books in Print and Manuscript, taught by my boss, Will Knoll, uh, here studying a printed book, and by my predecessor in the Shady Library, Paul Needham, here studying a medieval manuscript. I joined their team in a supporting role and was reminded of the real joy of showing amazing books to students who care deeply about learning more from them. I have the pleasure this evening of speaking to you about the afterlife of my recent book, Aditio Princeps, The History of the Gutenberg Bible, a book that many of you may not have read. In the history of, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's a history of the Gutenberg Bible as an influential printed edition, as a cultural icon, and as a corpus of distinctive surviving copies. To summarize its structure very briefly, part one, you don't have to read this, uh, part one consists of three relatively short introductory chapters that can be read or assigned separately. <laughs> Chapter one of Europe's first printer concerns what little the early sources tell us about, about Johann Gutenberg and the invention of printing in Europe beginning in the 1450s. Uh, chapter two, the, the work of the books, examines the physical makeup of the earliest fragments of Mainz printing and describes an ideal copy of the 42-line Bible edition now assigned to Gutenberg circa 1455. And then chapter three, a book without a history, introduces the waves of forgetfulness that allowed the 42-line Bibles to disappear from historical awareness during the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. Part two, A History of the Gutenberg Bible, takes a very different and more original approach across three much longer chapters. These look at the distinct physical characteristics, 15th century contexts, and later ownership histories of each of the surviving Gutenberg Bibles. Each Bible gets its own essay, uh, introduced in the order of its modern rediscovery. So that's what this long table of contents is. Year by year, what did we find in 1765? Um, Structurally, part two is kind of like Vasari's Lives of the Artists, in which you read about Leonardo da Vinci from birth to death, then go back to Raphael from birth to death, and then Michelangelo from birth to death. But in covering the three careers, you also learn more broadly about a crucial century of art history. My chapter four, The First Fruits, begins around 1700 with the earliest rediscoveries of the mysterious printed Bibles that were believed, rightly, to be Gutenberg's lost first edition, tracing the gradual but highly tentative increase in knowledge up to the year 1800. And the surprise here is that the 18th century scholars had located not just a handful of these Gutenberg Bibles, but 25 of them, although no one at the time was aware of more than a handful, and no one was certain that it really was Europe's first major printed book. The next chapter, The Long Harvest, does the same with 23 more rediscovered copies, uh, rediscovered during the massive upheaval of the Napoleonic closure of the monasteries in the Rhineland and Bavaria up to the end of the 19th century. Here, otherwise lost copies that survived only as scraps of binding waste, cut up and used as book bindings, are counted along with the more intact bound copies as copies. They just don't survive as well. The final chapter, uh, the, the last gleanings, 
follows up with 16 copies that came to light belatedly six, nine, since 1900, including two recently discovered fragments. So if you're keeping score, that's a total of 64 copies, 48 more or less preserved as books between covers, one sliced up as individual leaves for book lovers in 1920, and a long list of scattered binding scraps that I was able to collate according to their hand decoration styles into groups representing 15 distinct copies. An epilogue in my book uh, summarizes the latest advances in our understanding of the Gutenberg Bible based on modern bibliographical analysis and provides a broader picture of the original dissemination of the first edition based on provenance research and includes studies of the rubrication, hand decoration, and early bindings. Part three of my book provides the nerdy scholarly apparatus, a census of the surviving copies and all the fragments, recorded but unlocated survivals, ghost copies, I've got a Gutenberg Bible, um, and other things worth mentioning somewhere. Then come 1,000 footnotes, three indexes, and a huge bibliography spanning five centuries. Throughout the book are 110 illustrations, mostly in color, as well as several chapter frontispieces. I tried to make the pictures somewhat entertaining, as well as informative, as I believe that the history of books should on some level be the history of people. The title of this evening's lecture implies that the work of my book is ongoing and that there are lessons to be learned and next steps to be taken. There are two aspects to this continuity that I'd like to discuss. First, a consideration of what emerged regarding the Gutenberg Bible itself since the publication of my book in 2017. And second, some thoughts on where the methods employed in my book might lead for future projects concerning other early printed books. First, some new findings regarding the Gutenberg Bible. One of my most important discoveries, I thought, was the first published identification of a 42-line uh, Bible as Gutenberg's long-lost first edition. That is, the first time one of those lost books got called a Gutenberg Bible again after uh, centuries of forgetfulness. It was not uh, Guillaume de Boer's uh, uh, famous description of the copy at the Bibliothèque Mazarin in Paris in 1763, but rather an entirely forgotten article published in the journal Helvetique in uh, uh, 1745 by the Swiss librarian Samuel Engel, who discovered the copy in the Carthusian monastery of Michaelsburg outside of Mainz, a copy that the Archbishop of Mainz later took to Aschaffenburg, and it's still there. Even earlier than this was an unpublished identification of the Berlin copy as early as 1700. Um, however, since my book came out in 2017, I have learned of a much earlier reference to a Gutenberg Bible as a Gutenberg Bible that must count as the earliest known recognition of its historic nature. It's an inventory of the library of uh, the Duke of Wolfenbüttel's collection, uh, compiled by Eberhard Egelink in 1588, in which the Gutenberg Bible, now at the Göttingen University in Germany, was described in 1588 as, in German, uh, a Latin Bible, first and second parts, printed on vellum in the very first and oldest edition, when printing had just started. In folio, bound in boards in soft yellow leather, furnished with brass studs and clasps. Now, I dearly wish I had known about this obscure reference before 2017, but that's the nature of book history, that's the nature of Gutenberg research, it's never done. 
but I was more fortunate uh, when Wolfgang Bayer found this spectacular illuminated vellum fragment on a 17th century book binding in the State Library of Augsburg in September 2017, thereby allowing me to define a 64th lost copy of the Gutenberg Bible. It was just in time to be introduced into the corrected proofs of my copy census. And this is where the copy census currently stands. 64 copies survive to some extent. Another vellum fragment in a binding, or from a binding, I should say. That's, that's what's nice. This Augsburg book was in the binding. We knew which book and where it was. Um, another binding fragment came up in 2018 in a German private collection. Here it is. After my book came out. But I didn't feel like I'd missed too much. Um, because it does not count as a 65th copy. Because I was able to identify it by means of its rubrication style as simply the newest member of a fragment group that I had already seen in other fragments. I had already censused it. I called it the Eichstätt group, or copy, on the basis of the earliest known provenance among its siblings. Yale University announced it bought this bifolium in early 2019. Now, I assume that several more binding fragments will emerge in the next few years, now that busy librarians are figuring out that it is not a waste of time or a foolish dream to survey early bindings for forgotten treasures. Other recent discoveries have taken the form of scholarly insights. In 2021, as part of his exhaustive study of the 15th century Latin Bible tradition, Paul Needham observed the textual corrections introduced in the edition of uh, 1462, printed by uh, Johann Fust and Peter Schoeffer in Mainz in uh, 1462. These new differences from the Gutenberg Bible correlate to a very high and indicative degree to the inundations that the Benedictines of Jakobsburg in Mainz had entered by hand into their 42-line Bible, a vellum copy now at the Bibliothèque Nationale of Paris. So it's, I can't show them here, but the, 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 the little hand corrections here show up in the next printed edition. Clearly the local monks were not taking Bible lessons from first and Schiffer. Instead, it was the learned Benedictines who had corrected the first printed edition and subsequently conveyed their more authoritative reason, readings to the printers. The history of the Gutenberg Bible text before and after is one of the great open questions and Dr. Needham is certainly on it. Another much smaller discovery involves the paper copy of the Gutenberg Bible at the Bibliothèque Nationale. Although it lacks 153 leaves, this battered copy is the most important of all in terms of its documentary value. As is well known, it bears two dated Latin inscriptions um, by its rubricator. One at the end of Psalms notes that the first volume was illuminated, rubricated, and bound by Heinrich Kremer in the year 1456 on the Feast of St. Bartholomew, the 24th of August. Another inscription on the blank leaf at the end of Apocalypse adds that volume two was illuminated and bound by this same Heinrich Kremer, vicar of the Collegiate Church of St. Stephen in Mainz, in the year 1456 on the Feast of the Assumption of the Virgin Mary, the 15th of August. These 1456s are the earliest authentic dates written in any European printed book. That's well known. What intrigued me and uh, 
perhaps the most intriguing aspect of Heinrich Kremer's decoration of this paper copy, um, which is competent but not especially beautiful, uh, came to my awareness for the first time just a few weeks ago. And it's the peculiar style of the capital M throughout. I think you can see it there in red. Um, and here are more of them. And I could swear I had seen this somewhere before. And indeed, this M is a very close match for the shape of the ornamental initial M in the Cypress indulgences printed in Mainz with the types of the Gutenberg Bible in the spring of 1455. So questions abound. Did Kramer and the designer of the indulgence initial depend on a common source? Did Kramer admire a printed indulgence and incorporate its fancy M into his own work in 1456? Or was, I'll go back, or was the printed indulgence based on an exemplar that was written out by the vicar of St. Stephen's in Mainz, Heinrich Kramer? I'd love to know. Now an interlude for the lessons learned of my title. When a book historian compiles the stories of 64 Gutenberg Bibles, he will probably get something wrong. And indeed, I did get the provenance of the Huntington Library's beautiful vellum copy wrong. I was pretty happy to have made an important contribution to its story. Uh, we knew that the first leaf in each volume was signed by Count Otto II von Nostitz at Javor Castle near Breslau in the mid-17th century. But there were two versions of the later history of this book. One had it descending through the von Nostitz family before coming to light in London in the early 19th century, while the other story had it somehow returning to Mainz University, only to be stolen by French officers during the siege of 1792. Well, I proved that the von Nostitz tradition was correct, having discovered documentation that the Bible came to light in Prague in 1813 in the possession of an unspecified Count Nostitz. So it was signed in the 17th century by Count Nostitz, and in 1813, a certain Count Nostitz uh, owned it in Prague. But there was a problem with the von Nostitz family tree. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to look at that very closely. Um, and along the way, a major Gutenberg Bible census published in Munich in 1979, perhaps in an attempt to add more pictures, illustrated a Nostitz family book plate that is simply not there. It's not there. Uh, and, and it happens to be from the wrong side of the Nostitz family. So there was a problem in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in that census and uh, a complicated family tree to look into. Uh, to make a long and garbled story short, when I published my book, I had not gone and looked at the Huntington Bible for several years, and I did not double check um, all of the details of the description of the Munich census. Thus, I didn't catch on that the Bible had not descended directly to Otto's son in 1665, as implied by the spurious book plate that wasn't there. But instead, it had descended to Otto's stepbrother, Johann Hartwig von Nostitz, somewhere else on the chart, as proved by a different book plate of 1774 that is there. Thus, I identified the Count Nostitz who owned the Bible in 1813 and the root of descent incorrectly in my book. And um, so now I believe, I figured it out, I now believe that the last owner was a descendant of the other line 
Friedrich Graf von Neustadt's Reinick, who lived from 1762 to 1819. And I was gratified to be able to have the opportunity to correct my misinformation in print uh, in an article in 2021. Lessons learned, look at the copies yourself. Even if you've seen them before, go back. Uh, double check your facts. Uh, then point out your mistakes. Don't hide from them. Uh, in this rotunda, I just talked about a huge mistake I made in my book. Um, point out your mistakes and fix them. One last point on the Huntington copy. The illuminations and binding had long been assigned tentatively to Leipzig in Eastern Germany, but not really on convincing grounds. Um, during preparations for the Zeidberg lecture hosted by the Huntington Library in 2021, I was sent very good images of the illuminations and binding, which led me to reassign these finishing touches tentatively to Prague, uh, which happens to be much closer to where the book was in the 17th century and where it was to be found in 1813. Now, the key is my tentative recognition of the damaged binding tools on, this, on the covers here. Um, you're not going to be able to see it very well. I don't even see it very well. Um, but the uh, tooling here seems to reflect not one, but six different tools known to have been used in Prague bindings. Uh, they're all hard to see, but put together, I don't think I'm imagining six things going perfectly well. Uh, it's, it's one thing to imagine I can see a pelican right there. Uh, it's another to see all of the tools that are used by a shop on one binding. Um, and here they are. Uh, sort of the, 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 ev the tentative evidence and then what I think is the set of binding tools that this Prague bindery indeed used. Now, not all the data is in, and I need to travel to California and to Prague to do the proper comparisons. But 15th century Prague is an exciting new provenance for the Gutenberg Bible and a new direction. New directions like this are why we keep coming back. Another fruitful project that came, to, um, came right out of uh, my book was a closer look at the survival contexts. Oh, oh yeah, one of the tools, sorry. One of the tools has this wonderful uh, lion with the bifurcated tail. His tail sprouts into two. Well, that's still uh, the symbol of the Czech people. Uh, so I think it is a Prague binding. There we go. Yeah, another fruitful project that came out of my book is a closer look at the survival context of the Gutenberg Bibles, and these are they, that are known only from binding waste. I traced their presumed bindery locations on a map and uh, noted that they ranged across the same territory covered by the bound copies that survived. I think that's um, very interesting that, you know, the these, these Bibles went to their uh, binding, bindery graves uh, in the same regions that uh, had sort of proved to be the dissemination territory of the original edition. Then I made a timeline of their termini post-quaim, that is, the dates um, of the editions, the books, on which these Gutenberg Bibles met their demise as binding waste. Uh, this is the period when Instead of going and spending money on expensive blank vellum, you go cheap and you take the vellum that's printed by Gutenberg and cut it out. Um, so these books are books of these dates, and the Gutenberg Bible ends up as binding waste on these books. 
And you can see here uh, a range of dates, 1497, but probably a later binding. 1550s, 1570s, 80s, into the 17th century. And funny enough, uh, even in 1712, somebody in Mainz was cutting up a Gutenberg Bible. An interesting graph. Uh, then I tested the same method on the 30 uh, early Mainz Donatus schoolbooks fragment survivals for which we have context. These are just schoolbooks, not Bibles. Um, the Bibles and the Donatus schoolbooks were printed in the same, same city, on the same material, in the same period. And not surprisingly, they had roughly the same patterns of dissemination. Here are the uh, Donatus survivals, where they turned into binding waste. Germany, Austria, and the borderlands in the east, very little France, and no Italy. However, the dates at which, um, and there's the overlap of the um, Gutenberg Bible binding waste and the Donatus binding waste, really the same, same regions. Uh, however, the, the dates, excuse me, the dates at which the school groups were recycled in bindings were far earlier, beginning in the 1470s, and highly concentrated in the 15th century. There you can see several in the 1480s, 1490s, then some outliers into the 16th century. Clearly, as functional books, the Bibles and Donatuses could not have been more different, and so they had entirely different life expectancies. A century or two of religious use, or perhaps some long storage for the great Bibles before they were recycled as binding waste, versus just a few years of intense misuse of the Donatus by schoolboys, and a striking pattern of immediate discard as binding waste in the 1470s onward. I should have suspected this, and it's kind of a big duh. But now I have the data in front of me for an interesting new picture of the usage of early Mites printing differentiated by genre and function. And again, there's more work to do. Moving further beyond the Gutenberg Bible, it is both possible and fruitful to focus on the physical evidence of entire editions when the number of surviving copies is... Oh, here's the nice contrast uh, for you of the uh, Gutenberg Bible dates and the Donatus binding dates. Sorry, I fell behind my slides. It's fruitful to look at uh, the survivals of entire editions. Uh, when the number of surviving copies is small, the research is relatively easy. When it is larger, the difficulty increases, but so does the value of the data. Uh, while I was compiling all the data on the Gutenberg Bibles, tracing early sightings, looted libraries, and antiquarian book sales, I wasn't ignoring their fellow travelers. So I have a copy history and a notional distribution map for all 10 copies of the Mites uh, Psalter of 1457 on the left, and all 13 copies of the larger Benedictine Psalter of 1459 on the right. Uh, for the 50-plus copies of the 1459 Durandus there on the left, and the 10 vellum copies and 16 bull's head paper copies of the 1460 Catholicon printed in Mites on the right and just about every other book printed up to 1466. And taken as a whole, the data shows me things that I would not know from the study of just one or two copies or from just, you know, reading book history as it's written without looking at the copies. For example, I learned that, was, that there was no export of printed books from Mainz to Italy until the 1459 Durandus. 
for which all of a sudden we have 19 recorded copies with Italian provenances, including this one, illuminated in Turin. Uh, France really comes into the scene only uh, with the Bible of 1462. So, you know, I'd always read Gutenberg invented printing and books were everywhere in Europe overnight. Uh, no, the, the, the books that did the work of crossing the Alps and books that you know, went further east to Krakow, they're different, they're later. It's, 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 it's a machine, it's, it is, it's incredibly fast, but it's not that fast. Uh, it's worth studying. Or to cite another example of a project in progress, when we trace the early provenances of the next two editions of the Latin Bible, Johann Mentelin's Strasbourg edition of Not After 1460 and Albrecht Pfister's 36-line Bible of Not After 1461, we see that they were marketed to two essentially distinct regions that were reachable by different water and land routes. I just, you know, this is kind of Xeroxing a map and throwing down some locations and drawing some lines, but it's telling me that there is, you know, a pattern to where books end up uh, in the 15th century. And these printers and their book merchants and the buyers, this all made sense to them. Additions surviving in small numbers are the most fun. I have an article coming out about the provenances of every surviving illustrated book printed by Albert Pfister in Bamberg in the early 1460s, but it's essentially the story of four Samelbenda, that is, four volumes that bundled three or more of his books together in one package. So the survival histories are kind of all in common. And uh, so three survivals, you get nine books or more. Also going to press is a study of the collecting history of all 11 recorded copies of the first book printed in Cologne, Ulrich Zell's 1466 edition of John Chrysostom on Psalm 50. All 11 of these 10-leaf quartos would have been bound into Zamalbenda with other quartos. But none of these original contexts have survived undisturbed. So um, there's, a, there's an erosion of, of early libraries, there's an erosion of early book context, and it's, uh, you know, it becomes one's job to kind of understand uh, how things have worked, uh, particularly looking into levels and layers one can, can no longer see. I'm currently working on the story of the first edition of Virgil, printed in Rome by Swineham and Panax in 1469 which survives in eight copies, and was probably the most desired antiquarian book in Europe during the 1790s, that is, until the Gutenberg Bible took on greater prominence. Others, of course, have done similar survey work long before me, and others are doing similar work today. Our David Peterson has written eloquently on the importance of the copy census as a methodology of book history. And many of you know the compendia of provenances and copy specifics by Owen Gingrich on uh, the uh, De Revolutionibus and of Copernicus and Anthony James West on the Shakespeare first folios, all of them, uh, among other studies. Looking in my own field of 15th century books, I'm, I'm reminded of the late, great Lillian Armstrong, who in any given conference paper might casually rattle off that among the 98 extant copies of De Spira's 1470 Augustine City of God, 27 of them bear illumination, of which 10 are Venetian examples. Or in another chart, she would show that she knew of 548 illuminated copies surviving from all of the editions printed in uh, the uh, De Spira Press or by Nicholas Jensen between 1469 and 1474. Um, 
this is the kind of essential data that one does not come by easily or quickly. Mayumi Ikeda at uh, Keio University in Tokyo has surveyed several early Mainz editions analyzing stock patterns used for the illumination of multiple copies in or around a so-called Fustmaster workshop. Carolina Zuhl at the University of Vienna has checked all copies of Günther Zeiner's 1469 Augsburg edition of the Catholicon, analyzing at least 28 that were illuminated before sale in the Johann Bemmler workshop. Um, uh, Satoko Tokunaga, also at Keio University, has sorted out the individual rubricators of dozens of copies of Caxton's English editions, such as the Golden Legend, and there are many other uh, uh, similar projects I should mention of studies of a particular edition in every surviving copy. Juggling our definitions of editions, John McQuillan at the Morgan Library is studying all the surviving European block books in America while notionally, notionally reuniting all of the scattered fragments, no matter where they are. And quite analogous in scope to my Gutenberg Bible project, but from another period in another world, uh, is my Princeton colleague Gabriel Swift's in-progress history of the original readership, survival, and later collectability of every known copy of the so-called Elliot Indian Bible, translated into Algonquian and printed in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1663. Every copy has a sad, strangely incongruous afterlife. Um, and I look forward to this, all this work and more projects like it. The bibliographical data gained by looking at every copy of a book can be extremely rich, and the historical insights derived are often revelatory. Yet these projects, and here I'm speaking only of my own, uh, don't promise to turn into good books every time. The arc of history needs to be interesting. Attitudes towards the book need to change drastically over time. And the book needs to mean different things to different people. For example, I don't think I could ever write a history of the 1493 Nuremberg Chronicle or the Aldine Hit Maratomachia, because these great illustrated books were always appreciated, even after they ceased to be read, and the survival stories of the hundreds of copies are, are kind of too much the same. One is also doomed when writing a book to conclude the research prematurely. Committing the story to print brings the narrative to a close, even though the story is never over. Therefore, online media of various kinds, uh, metadata-rich image databases, other forms of adaptable and updatable scholarly publications might be preferable to hard-covered tomes that can't change. What will the future bring? I hope it will bring more ways to bring scattered knowledge together. But will we still be thinking along these lines, studying these books to the nth degree? I half expect that in 50 or 100 years, someone will come along and update the history of the Gutenberg Bible, perhaps commenting on how it once fascinated an increasingly small circle of specialists, <laughs> even while a curious broader public simply accepted it as an essential cultural icon, marking the rise of Western printing and the foundations of early modern progress. Our future critics might add this unread but priceless Bible or at least the rhetoric attached to it, inevitably became problematic. Too much of a dead white European thing, aligned with Christianity and privilege, out of touch with a more global reality, and maybe by then entirely irrelevant except to some myopic book historians. I believe there would be considerable validity to that point of view, and that the questioning 
of centuries of scholarly and cultural championing will be entirely legitimate and welcome. Some remarkably pompous and unthinking claims have been made on behalf of Gutenberg, uh, the so-called man of the millennium, over the past century and more. Things that cast aside much earlier achievements in Asian printing, and which sound like they reinforce theories of European exceptionalism. So the task at hand for book historians is to rethink this history and to get it right. To put the origins of this one book tradition into proper relationship with all others, and to try to understand the valid causes of changing attitudes towards these books that have occurred, and no doubt will occur. And finally, not simply to assert that the Gutenberg Bible is a world treasure, but to find ways of transforming it into one. Thank you. I'm told that there is time for questions, and I would love some questions. And I believe you get to speak into the mic. Is that right? Yeah. Questions? I don't see questions yet. Crowdsourcing or, or, or team research. I think that is what is happening and what should happen. Um, there was a question in my mind somewhere around 2011 why are you writing this book? Because it becomes your book. You, want, you have a plan, you want to say something. But um, for um, a project that really takes on a, um, a broader scale, and might not need that kind of editorial depth, but like we're just trying to get the facts. 
Uh, those are these um, uh, um, projects for uh, teamwork, both in the 15th century and I'm sure you know, later on. There's something called the you know, MEI, Material Evidence of Indian Mandela. It's a big team of people looking at all the books and getting the data in. Um, and I think the teamwork is, is, is the way. I think every scholar who imagines they're going to write a book about such and such edition is going to find out that somebody else is writing the same book. And there's that fear that they will encounter something. Um, you know, who else is writing about the 1663 Elliot Pipe, for instance? You have to find out. Uh, so some people become the proprietors of a great deal of information, but they have to, um, at some point, acknowledge uh, they could use help and could, could uh, definitely share. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about the team you're working on for the invention of printing and okay. how you're one of the two people who are working on the metal type aspect of that? Sure, yeah, that's a big, big team, and it's, um, we have, we've never really met. It's like, a, you know, there's been some Zooms, and, you know, emails, uh, but it's international. Um, scholars of the Korean printing tradition in particular um, have uh, come and visited, had a few meetings with us, and it's really a project driven by recognition that a book called Ajitji was printed with Mughal metal type in Korea in 1377. And, um, you know, Grandpa Gutenberg, it's, it's before anything European by the long stretch. So it's, it's something that just needs to be acknowledged. There's only one copy of the book. It's in Paris. So um, it's a team that is looking at ways to bridge a gap where maybe scholars of uh, East Asian printing and scholars like me, at first we're looking entirely at Europe, come together, share, um, share data, share approaches, and understand uh, better so that we make better statements about world history of printing. Um, we're looking for uh, very high-tech evidence of the uh, metal types sometimes which exist, the Korean types sometimes exist, the early ones, none of Gutenberg's exist. Uh, and so we did just acquire some 15th century printing types, but they're not 50 years earlier. And we are uh, taking multispectral imagery, we're looking for uh, the ingredients of the, the ink, uh, anything that these, this team of specialists, and everybody's invited, will look at and um, see things. Um, we're not guided by a principle of finding the missing link between Asian printing and European ink, European printing. Um, we're looking for uh, commonalities of a method that will help us think. Um, if we found some smoking gun of a tight road between East and West, we'd all be very, very thrilled. Um, right now, we don't credit Gutenberg with knowing anything about China or Korea. We credit him with knowing something about metal in mines. Um, that's just getting going. We're just starting to get our uh, technical data together and we are just receiving the files, just receiving uh, sort of margin orders to start looking. We don't know what we're going to find. There's the next one. If um, Elizabeth Eisenstein was here, yeah. um, 
what would you say to her about how your work might inform or change her view, views that she represented in her Oh, questions about Elizabeth Eisenstein's book and a, and a you know, broader, broader picture of the expansion of the of the of the book culture in the printed age. Um, it's a big question. Um, I think what I would think about how my work relates to it is I'm just bringing. I feel like I've brought up data. I feel like I've brought up data and. What I hope are facts and interpretations that allow other people to then stand on my shoulders and maybe write more of a big picture uh, than I felt capable of doing, um, a bigger arc of history than I felt I was I was doing, and I think that's that's important. Um, but I think it all uh, works very well. What we're finding is that history printing is not just you know, genius in one city and then books go flying. It is that there is um, these slow wheels of the church that crank out indulgences. There's the slow wheels of the boats uh, that, that uh, start uh, moving things up and down rivers in Germany. And there are these faster processes once printing comes to Venice because they have boats that go everywhere. Um, so I think this sort of real history of how the printing revolution worked it's still coming out, it's still coming out of the facts. And uh, with those facts, people with a, you know, different, from a different field, from a different part of history, uh, can, can work together. That's kind of 
over here. One more? Sure. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I just wondered what you've learned about the invention of type manufacture at the time of the question is what I've learned about the manufacture of type in Gutenberg's time. And I think I have learned that I know less now than I, learned, than I knew when I started. Um, there's a controversy uh, right now. Um, I learned young that movable metal type in the West was made with a metal punch put into a softer metal to make a hollow matrix some sort of casting system allowed the warm metal to descend in that, adopt the shape, and they come out as identicals. Identicals, identicals. Um, there's evidence now, uh, I'll call it evidence, that is visualist from the ink impression on paper or on vellum that makes it look as if the constituent parts of those letters are kind of dancing around, as if they don't all have the same Parents, rounded forms here, straight forms a little bit longer, some crossbars. Why are they moving up and down the shaft? Um, it's counterintuitive. They should have made identical types. It would have been better, more efficient, easy. Um, but the evidence is telling us there's something happening in the reflection on the paper and the vellum in ink that makes it look like. They didn't have a permanent shape to the letters when they were making it. Later, 1470s, they do. It looks like there's uniformity to the letters. Uh, so we're studying that. Um, and so I haven't learned how that was done or why that was done. I've learned that there's a problem. And um, less than one in the 15th century is outright ambiguity. I'm waiting and looking and thinking for all the um, And I think that's where we, where we are. I think there is um, there are ways to explain away those movements and shifts, but I don't think they're ink spreading on wet paper. I don't think they're misprints. They should have made, in our minds, identical types. They made many, many, many different types. And it's peculiar, counterintuitive. And uh, another explanation is, well, or at least a complaint about the observation, is that that's, that's not efficient. That's, that's another one of these, you know, it doesn't really work out. That's, they wouldn't do it that way. I try to never take a modern efficiency model and impose it on the 15th century, I think. Um, the Gutenberg Bible is a crazy thing to have done. I think making all that type in a way that we don't understand and doesn't seem efficient to us is totally natural from, from all I see. I see hundreds of castings in, in, you know, in, in a couple of Bible volumes. I see gold and, and colors everywhere. Um, so I don't see 15th century efficiency models at work. Uh, if, if, if the 15th century was efficient, there wouldn't be a Hebrew Bible, there wouldn't be a Gantelper piece, there wouldn't be a Brunelski's dome. They, they did it, though. So.
Good question. That's great. Thank right. you. Right. I really want to thank Eric.